Just a quick note before today's show. We have transformed our entire platform to respond to the current crisis and increased our production of both podcast episodes and blogs, but we cannot do so without your support. Please consider making a donation or contributing as a volunteer to support our active engagement at this critical time. If we are complacent and don't do really aggressive containment and mitigation, the number could go way up, many, many millions. Uh, to be isolating patients, emphasizing social distancing. Wuhan, uh, China, it's confirmed the coronavirus outbreak is now a That COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. Italy, one of the worst affected countries. And business supply chains are being disrupted around the globe. This combination of people being unable to work, businesses being and those of us It's confirmed the coronavirus outbreak is now a pandemic. Hello, Insight Myanmar listeners. My name is Mary, and I'll be your guest host for this episode on COVID-19 in Myanmar and what is being done to try to slow the spread. I am a Canadian international development worker and lived in Malamien, the largest city in Myanmar's southeastern region, for two and a half years. Now based in Canada, my heart broke in February with news of the coup, and I started looking for ways to support the pro-democracy movement. In addition to assisting my own colleagues in country and along the Thai border, I joined the Global Movement for Myanmar Democracy, a group led by the youth of the Myanmar diaspora. This group works on advocacy at a global level, fundraising and movement building for support to CDM and humanitarian response. In today's episode, we look at the context and politics surrounding the current wave of COVID-19 in Myanmar, as well as the personal lived experience of surviving the Delta variant in Yangon. Our first guest, Allison. So Delta is as been shown by the CDC, has been, is a lot more transmissible. A second year med student shares about the impact of this particular wave in Myanmar and the strain on the healthcare system. Our second guest, Michaela. A friend saying, hey, this person tested positive, And then after that sort of. Gives us an intimate look at the fear and pain of treating COVID-19 without any external support. Our final guest is Sandra. When the coup happened through prior experience I've had in, in Myanmar. A med student and co-founder of GM4MD, who will talk about some of the responses to the crisis and political actions we can take to support healthcare workers and the pro-democracy movement. So please sit back and enjoy these interviews. Whatever karma that is good, have done this will protect you it's certainly a, a teaching for the world of interconnectedness uh, we will realize the, the nature of interbeing and interconnectedness uh, it's really an opportunity to come back to our own intentions to our own heart to our own body and mind in this moment remember peace in the face of suffering We can perhaps uh, see a, an opportunity in this situation. Your meditation practice, it's a beautiful gift to the world. People can learn how to help each other and how to love. 
mutual support in the time of hardship. They learned how to support each other unconditionally. People can become closer to each other, seeing new horizons of life. I do see some positive aspects of this corona crisis in the world. We all sitting in one boat. We see that in a sense that brings people also closer together. That we are all looking out for each other. People getting closer together and watching out for each other. We have more time for our families, for the community and time to meditate. introducing yourself to the listeners. So my name is Allison. I am currently a second year medical student in Texas, and I am a Burmese Chinese American citizen. Excellent. Um, And in your opinion, from your perspective, what is happening in Myanmar right now with COVID-19? So basically what we're seeing currently in Myanmar is the result of a complete healthcare collapse because the military has been targeting healthcare workers for many months and the COVID infrastructure has basically been obliterated. So no tracking, very little testing. The COVID facilities are just not up to par with what is needed right now. And unfortunately, the Delta variant has really taken a hold on the country And that's resulted in many unnecessary hospitalizations and deaths and just many more tragedies that the people of Myanmar don't need right now. So going into more detail, what had been happening in Myanmar to respond to COVID-19 before the coup? So in the first and second waves, what, what kinds of measures did we see? Yeah, so we definitely saw a lot more preventative measurements taken against COVID by the the civilian government before the military coup. So you could see the the stark difference in how much more organized, clean, and pristine the COVID quarantine facilities were. There was much more accurate tracking as well as testing. And obviously there were less opportunities to spread the virus because there were no arbitrary arrests or there are no mass protests against this uh, military government. So there is less opportunities for the virus to spread in that way. But unfortunately, it's definitely spiraled in the past couple months for... Yeah. And and what is it about Delta that is like making it unique from other variants? 
So Delta is, as been shown by the CDC, has been is a lot more transmissible, and it actually can. It has been shown that there might be um, some sort of evasion techniques it can have against even vaccines. So, you know, I know some people in Myanmar who got a vaccine for COVID, and they still got infected uh, with Delta. So. It can. It's definitely just more, much more transmissible, and def, and there has been some evidence to show that it might be more deadly, as well as the fact that it could evade some vaccine defenses. So the possibility of breakthrough infections are definitely much more probable than the past couple variants that we've seen. Right, and like, what part of the population is it affecting? Is it mostly much older people, or is it also younger people this time? Mm-hmm. So it's basically everybody. Uh, younger population in the past has definitely had a, a bit of a leg up in terms of being protected from severe symptoms of Delta. But, you know, even looking at America, a lot of the hospitalizations happening right now are young people. So Delta is definitely much more deadly to everybody in general, but we are seeing a lot more young people get infected and with severe infections as well. And that's, that's very concerning. Right. Um, and we, I guess we don't know for sure what's happening in the prisons in Myanmar, but what, what would you guess is taking place with COVID-19? I, yeah, I definitely think the prisons are majorly underreporting the numbers of COVID right now. You know, we have no social distancing in prisons, no masks. Uh, you're living in very, very terrible conditions. Uh, and it's honestly inhumane. And I'm guessing that, and people aren't even getting the medical care they need in the prisons. Like if they're showing symptoms, like the military definitely will not hospitalize you or give you the treatment you need unless it's absolutely probably too late for you. So what I'm guessing is that prisons are just becoming a a huge super spreader um, hub for COVID. And it's definitely very tragic to see. Right. Um, I've heard from people in Myanmar that a lot of people with these serious cases are trying to avoid the hospitals. So what options do people have if they if they develop these respiratory issues and they're trying to stay at home? Like, what what are they doing? What works? I de- I think that something that I've heard that people have been using in you know Myanmar and also just the Southeast Asian region is an antiparasitic called ivermectin, which is very interesting. Um, they're currently doing some studies on that, and ivermectin is definitely um, a bit more accessible and cheaper um, in an for a normal person, you know, to be honest, there's not a lot you can do, which is extremely tragic and just very sad because it's something so preventable. You know, if you catch it early, if you start showing symptoms early and get the treatment you need, you your chances of survival are a lot better. But for the people in Myanmar, just a lot of the the options for treatment have been hindered by the lack of resources because of the military government. It's very tragic. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, people have been using devices called oxygen concentrators. So maybe you can just tell like the listeners that, because I, I wasn't sure what that was either. So 
maybe you can just describe mm-hmm. what that is. Yeah, of course. So basically, the main thing that COVID really affects is your lungs. So a lot of people will have respiratory symptoms uh, along with COVID, and a lot of the time it can get very severe. So they aren't getting enough oxygen in their body to supply their tissues needed for normal functioning. So what oxygen concentrators do is basically kind of supply that oxygen for you because you're not, your lungs are not able to take enough oxygen from the air. Um, so oxygen concentrators are very helpful and they are extremely effective in helping people breathe whenever they can't because of COVID. So would you say it's kind of like the the at-home version of a, a vent, like not a ventilator? I know that those are very intensive and intrusive, mm-hmm. but it's kind of like a, a take-home version <laughs> of that? I don't know if I would, no. I would, I don't know if I would say that necessarily, okay. um, but I think that, I think that it will help you breathe without needing a ventilator, if that makes okay. sense. So I think it's like, I wouldn't say it's a take home, but I would say it's definitely like a level, it's a level up from it in a good way. Yeah. Okay. I see. I see. Yeah. I was, I wanted to talk about it because I know it's been, they've been very popular items for people and just to. It's something mm-hmm. that here in North America, we haven't had to think about how to, if, mm-hmm. if, it, if we got to that level mm-hmm. of, of, of ill, we would go to the hospital, but. Yes. And the hospital usually will supply you with that oxygen. So it is something used in the hospital for, you know, severe, moderate to mildly severe, but um, not extremely severe. Whenever you have an extremely severe case, usually they will put you in a ventilator. But um, for most cases, if you're, we have something called an O2 oximetry um, measurement. So we measure your O2 saturation and that number should usually um, be in the 90s. Ideally, it'd be above 95. Um, So whenever your O2 starts dropping, that's whenever they start supplying the oxygen. Um, through the oxygen concentrator. Yeah, these these devices have also sold out in Myanmar because people are becoming their own nurses and doctors and trying to take mm-hmm. care of their their families and neighbors. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That that is correct. And you know, I don't think that the people of Myanmar and, and the ordinary civilians should be doing that. That is something that in America Usually trained medical professionals will do. So it's just very sad to see that people have just had to fend for themselves in this case. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it, it makes you feel very fortunate to have all the infrastructure that we've got set up and the, the support is happening with vaccinations in Myanmar. Um, Is there any hope for a mass vaccination campaign? Because I know that countries, other countries in the area have been actually quite successful in their vaccination campaigns. So Mm -hmm. what is the hope in Myanmar? Yeah, of course, I can talk about that. Um, So just a little bit of background, you know, Myanmar before the military coup was supposed to have one of the best vaccination plans uh, in the Southeast Asian region. Like, they were already starting to vaccinate healthcare workers. They had a whole system where they basically were saying, you can't skip the line. So, you know, healthcare workers were getting vaccinated first and, and the elderly and then on and on to just the basic necessity and uh, urgency for the need to get vaccinated. 
Uh, unfortunately, whenever the military coup happened, that vaccination plan kind of was thrown out the window and the military kind of sequestered vaccines um, for themselves, which is unfortunate. But I've heard reports of other countries trying to contribute vaccines to Myanmar. Um, I know that there's certain vaccines that people are kind of starting to have to buy by themselves. I'm not exactly sure how that works. And it's not really exactly a, a verified news source, but just from rumors of word of mouth that you can buy um, certain vaccines like Sinopharm and things like that. Um, but to be honest, I am not completely sure about a mass vaccination campaign right now, considering the just the tension between uh, the military, the people, and also the NUG trying to um, also be a part of that vaccination plan. It's a very complicated execution, to be honest. And there's a lot of moving parts that are involved with that. Yeah. And what are the risks to having this country like Myanmar that's so almost impossible to cooperate with, like internationally with vaccinations? What is the risk of having a population with such a high rate of, of incidence, I guess, of COVID? Mm-hmm. So the biggest risk that I see letting Myanmar go unvaccinated completely is another variant coming out that's even worse than Delta. And that can even, that can evade even more treatments as well as our current Pfizer, Moderna, um, all the other vaccines that are happening right now. Um, And there's still movement in and out of the country with people fleeing, which obviously no one can blame them for doing that. And just with movement out of the country, um, it is very possible that another variant worse than Delta could spread. So the whole world needs to pay attention to what's going on and try to get the people in Myanmar vaccinated because we want to end this pandemic. And with Delta, we've kind of taken a step back, but letting a country like Myanmar go unvaccinated will definitely, there's definitely a huge risk for causing another variant to spread among Southeast Asia first and then the rest of the entire world. Yeah, and we'll just highlight again, most most listeners know this, but um, interaction between Myanmar and China is very high. Lots of, lots of, business links there. Um, there's border crossings into India currently out of Chin State. So it, it borders with like a lot of the world's population. Um, what kind of campaign or activities have Myanmar American medical students been carrying out in solidarity with the healthcare workers in Myanmar and students, not only healthcare workers in Myanmar, but also students, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so back in April, we actually um, coordinated what we called a white coat strike. So basically, med- healthcare professionals in general, not just medical students, but all healthcare professionals were asked to wear their white coat, take a picture with the three finger salute, and hashtag it white coat strike. Um, and maybe just talk a little bit about their experience in healthcare or just spreading awareness about what's currently going on in Myanmar with healthcare workers being under attack. And I am so happy to say that campaign was so successful. There was a lot more participation than I thought there was gonna be, to be honest, but we had like over a thousand hashtags on Facebook. There are a lot of hashtags on Twitter. It was definitely spreading among all social media platforms. So that was wonderful. 
Um, and that was one of the biggest things we did to spread awareness. Other than that, there have been donation campaigns for oxygen tanks and just to help healthcare workers in general gain medical supplies that they so desperately needed and they still do desperately need at the moment. And why do you think the, these doctors and nurses continue to risk their lives to try to help people? Why, why are they taking that gigantic risk? You know, I think that goes back to just the concept of healthcare in general and what, you know, as a medical student, what I was taught at basically the first day, day one, which is the concept of do no harm and the Hippocratic Oath, which is to just, you know, help everybody. As a medical professional, you have a responsibility to maintain the health of your patients no matter what. And I think that despite the, the risks, these healthcare workers in Myanmar are willing to risk their lives because they know that the, the civilians in Myanmar are, they, they need to stay alive and there needs to be some sort of resolution to the coup. And for that to happen, there also needs to be like, there needs to be civilians that are willing to do that. I think it's definitely the passion and the personal responsibility we all feel to treat all the sick and just every patient in general, because, you know, as a medical student, day one of medical school, they really hammered in to our heads that our lives are being dedicated to this cause to maintain the health of our patients and the world in general. So I think that doctors and nurses in Myanmar, just like doctors and nurses everywhere else in the world, they're just passionate about maintaining the health of their patients to better promote just to better promote um, just health of the country in general. Um, so I think it's definitely just a personal responsibility and just a passion to further jobs, which is extremely admirable. Wow. Um, and do you have family in Myanmar? Yes, I, I do. Um, so I'm just wondering, were they, did you have a lot of people reaching out to you or do you still have a lot of people reaching out to you because you are the medical student and they're asking you what they should do? Have you experienced this kind of, mm -hmm. and how are you, how are you coping with that? Um, so my parents are actually doctors. Okay. <laughs> um, so my parents are doctors, so they reach out, my family reaches out to them first before me, um. So I haven't had to deal with that, but I think that it has definitely affected me because I do see a lot of my family members getting infected with this virus. And it's extremely scary. Like, like I said, one of my family members was vaccinated and she still got infected. And I wouldn't call any of their courses of sickness a mild or just like a common cold. You know, it was definitely more moderate. And it's very scary because one of them was around 30 years old, which is you know, you would think that that wouldn't cause anything serious, but he almost had to be on oxygen. It was extremely scary. Um, and I think that, to me, it's definitely influenced my outlook on the COVID situation in the U.S. It, personally, I, my feelings on it are just that I don't understand <laughs> a lot of, um, just a lot of the discourse that's going on, uh, on around COVID in the United States, because I feel like People just haven't seen, a lot of people 
haven't seen the true effects that Delta can have on um, just your mental health and just emotionally and even physically, you know, seeing your family member get sick and knowing that there's not a lot that you can do for them um, because you're on the other side of the world is just, it's a new feeling of helpless. And it's really sad, <laughs> to be honest. And I really hope that, you know, the United States doesn't ever come to that stage because it's really hard to deal with. Do any of your friends and family in Myanmar ever ask you, like, what is happening in the U.S.? Um, are they ever curious why there's people that don't want to get vaccines? Um, to be honest, no, probably because they're occupied with their own, um, with their own situation, which is much, much worse. And I definitely don't blame them. But I, you know, I don't understand personally. And I think that that just has a lot to do with perspective. Just like I said, a lot of the people in the United States will never experience seeing their family members suffer because of something so preventable. And in a way, I kind of pity them because they're never going to know the feeling of just that, that feeling of empathy and just of a new, I feel like it's like almost in a way kind of love because like you kind of, realize like how much you really love the people around you to the point where you just feel extremely sad whenever you see that they they're suffering like this and it's just yeah it's a really I think it's a lot of emotions and I personally have felt like this and I think a lot of my friends who are um, Burmese or from the diaspora have also felt like this and we just we just see the situation in the U.S. so differently than I think a lot of people do. Yeah, I've I've seen on Twitter a lot of people who call both countries home um, using actually the same word you just used was pity, to feel this pity that um, there's this lack of community care and this lack of um, wanting to take care of each other. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, back to Myanmar, what are the long-term implications of like an um, such a high infection rate going down even like years to come, like what, what are going to be mm -hmm. the after effects of so many people mm -hmm. getting COVID? So I think that that's divided into twofold, right? So to be honest, we don't even know uh, as a world what the long-term effects of getting a COVID infection are. So basically we're going to see what I'm thinking at this point, and this is an expert opinion, just um, something that I've observed is that people who have, who have had a lot of lung, had a lot of um, severe lung issues with their COVID infection, are gonna see a lot of health problems with their lungs to come. Like you already see there's x-rays of people infected with the Delta variant, and you can see that their lungs show a lot of fibrotic tissue, which is not a good thing. That basically means that your tissue is not taking in as much oxygen as it needs to, and that the your O2 or your oxygen um, capacity in your lungs is going to be severely affected, which is going to affect your daily day day to day life. Um, on the other hand, you also see that there's a thing called long COVID, which is basically people experiencing these really um, unknown and kind of kind of um, I want I don't want to say weird, but like just symptoms that they weren't expecting to feel. A lot of it has to do with fatigue, just tiredness after that. So I can see a lot of that happening. 
um, to the people of Myanmar. And I think the other aspect of it that um, will affect a lot of people, like probably nearly the entire country, is just the emotional aspect. You know, seeing a loved one die or seeing a loved one suffer like that and seeing multiple loved ones suffer like that, that just has a lot of psychological implications that will affect the mental health of a lot of people in the years to come. And I think that we're going to definitely see those effects start to start to manifest itself in a couple of years from now, which is really, really tragic. So really what, what Myanmar needs to recover now is really strong health infrastructure, both in caring for these like respiratory issues, all those weird issues. They are weird issues. I've also heard of people having like the worst, yeast infections of their whole entire lives related to COVID. Like it's Mm -hmm. strange, strange things. Um, As well as the the mental health infrastructure on a mass scale. Um, Mm -hmm. And Myanmar doesn't have it right now. No, they don't. And I really, really wish they did. Yeah. So um, what would you say going forward in, in an ideal situation, in a stable situation, what would Myanmar need to do to, to respond to what has happened already? So I think firstly, there should be a mass vaccination campaign and it should be accessible, very accessible. Pretty much, I think it should be free, to be honest. So just a mass vaccination campaign. And I think that along with that, there might be some misinformation going around. I know in the United States there is. So just also alongside a vaccination campaign, uh, just a misinformation um, debunking campaign for individuals who just may not, who may have some misconceptions or just may not understand um, the implications of getting vaccinated versus not getting vaccinated. Although I feel like the response to a mass vaccination campaign would be a lot better in Myanmar than the United States. So I'm not sure how much we actually need that. Um, I think that, you know, you can see the the current issues going on. We need to, we need hospitals. We need a lot of hospital bed capacity. We need ICU capacity. We need doctors and nurses to not be completely scared of getting arrested or killed because they're doing their passion and their job to care for people. Um, and we also, I think that, there should be more funding in an ideal situation put into getting adequate mental health resources for individuals going through loss and going through just the trauma of seeing uh, family members get COVID. So I think those are a lot four things that are definitely very pertinent to me and important that, uh, in an ideal situation. Right, right. And are you, are you currently involved in any other advocacy work? other than the white coat strike? So I have been involved with medical advocacy and the global movement for Myanmar democracy. We're not currently as active right now just because uh, just because of certain situations there have been, um, and also the COVID situation is just is really not the best right now. So I think that we've been trying to, get information about COVID out to the people of Myanmar um, to better help them uh, in the fight. Um, but yeah, that's mainly the, the biggest thing that I've been involved with in, in, in 
um, with medical efficacy. It's just with global movement for Myanmar democracy, doing the white coat strike, and also uh, just making infographics and spreading the word about what has happened to healthcare workers in Myanmar. Great. In your advocacy work, have you come across or learned about like what kind of role um, the international community can play in in helping to respond to this COVID crisis in Myanmar? Yeah, I think that you know, first of all, they there's definitely money needed to be put into donating for. Uh, COVID supplies and just things that will help combat COVID in the civilian population because the military is still very much actively ignoring that situation. Um, so I think money is, first of all, one of the most important things. But, you know, if you can't monetarily donate, I think awareness is a huge thing. Uh, just spreading the word about what is going on and like the, the state of the COVID situation in Myanmar is so important. And that doesn't have to be through social media. That can be through word of mouth to family members or to, to, to friends um, about what's going on. And I think thirdly, what the international community can do is also get vaccinated because I think that that's just a little part that you can play in helping, in helping the situation because, you know, I see all these vaccines in the U.S. just not being put to use. And it's really painful to see that because I know that a lot of people, not even just in Myanmar, but in like other countries could really use that vaccine. Um, so if you have vaccines available to you, I think that that is getting vaccinated is one of the most important things you can do because I think it's one, it could be a, a sign of solidarity. And, you know, people might not agree with me on that, but I personally think that's like a really, uh, a motion a symbol of solidarity to the people of Myanmar because you're doing your part to prevent further infection. And, you know, a lot of the uh, strains, the new strains that have come up have been because of just one person and they mutated the virus, uh, you know, their immune system somehow mutated the virus and that spread. So you do not want to be the next spreader of another variant of COVID. So getting vaccinated is one of your best bets to not do that and to help the people of Myanmar. Yeah, that's a nice way to think of it. Um, and that's what we've been saying all along, right? Is those of us who can get vaccinated need to because there are people who can't. And right now the people of Myanmar can't because they don't have access to it. Mm -hmm. So you're right. Yeah. Yes. A sign of solidarity. Great. Allison, was there anything else you wanted to, to share on the podcast? Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. I think that, you know, the activists on the ground have been doing so much work to not only uh, just to spread information about what's going on in Myanmar. Like, I feel like I couldn't have gotten a lot of the information I have or been has updated on the situation if I wasn't following certain um, activist accounts um, on social media. So I think that a lot of the credit to just being able to make some of these movements possible, especially the White Coast Strike, goes to the social media activists who continuously risk their lives um, to inform the rest of the world about what's going on. And I think that we, we really couldn't do it without them.
And I think that a lot of the credit should go to the people on the ground and the people, um, especially the ethnic minorities, um, activists who are just informing the rest of the world what's going on in the rural states and everything like that. I really, really appreciate them so much. And I know that they are risking so much just to, just to put it out there. So I want to give a huge shout out to them. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think um, unless you've got more to share, we're going to wrap it up. Does that sound okay? Yes. Thank you. Great. Allison. Okay. Thank you so thank much you. for having me. Of course. Thank you so much for sharing um, some of your medical expertise with us on the Delta variant and what's happening in Myanmar. Thanks for talking a bit about your personal experience with your family there. Um, it's been very, very insightful. And I hope you've convinced some vaccine hesitant people maybe to go and do it in solidarity. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Mr. General-in-Chief, I don't know where or how you are in these dreadful days of bloodshed, but I hope you can stop for a while to put down your guard and defenses and listen to a monk's words of reason. Mr. General, the power is now in your hands. You grabbed it as one picks a beautiful flower in bloom. Our land and all its grace has fallen under your grasp but withers away, perishes in your clenched fist. You see, in order to stay strong and healthy, this kind of flower needs to be kept alive and free from all that's doing injustice and harm. This flower has shown the world again and again the need for their roots to stay firm in Yama's soil in order to thrive and grow many, fulfilling a whole garden of flowers. Instead, we see soldiers trampling all that's precious. No rules, except the rules you've made them believe. It's wrong, Mr. General. Have you no eyes to see the damage? The beautiful garden, in all its charming diversity, has been sacrificed for power, imprisoned with violence, by a martial dog barking day and night. Listen to me. The flowers are now closing their petals, slowly adjusting. The sun is not there anymore, has become hidden behind clouds of mistrust and destruction. You're trying to convince that our power is your power to rule, to own, and to control. I'm sorry, Mr. General, but we've already made our choices. Whom to trust, what future to believe in, and all voices were assured to count. The next four years, we were convinced of the gift of less violence, of more justice and freedom, a new web of power was allowed to assemble from the people, with the people, for the people, and had become the sprouting roots of our nation. Now you and your soldiers took that away, denying us the trust, as so many generals have done before you, forcing us once again to live with guns in our backs. The flowers are waiting, Mr. General, for you to come to your senses, patiently, but not all that obediently. 
For the wind of change to blow fresh once more. The walls and fences you've put around us might keep the wind out, but not for long. Nature always finds us a way to freedom, and will raise us and bloom once again. And deeply rooted inside our hearts, in fertile, fearless soil, new seeds of resistance has already sprouted, a secret garden you will never be able to control. We ask you, all generals of old, uncover your minds, release your darkness and its heavy shadow, step out of the way, and so become part of us, the people, a people without the violence and the killings, a people concerned for the happiness and benefit of all. This would be in accordance with the demand. ဒီသူရဟန်ရေးသားသည်ဘိုးချုံးမူကြီးခမ်းရာခမ်းရဘယ်ရောက်နေလဲကျန်းခန့်သားလို့မာပါလေးစာကြုံမတိဘူးနာ
ခမရတဲ့အရင်ပိုကြီးများအားလုံးကြုတ်တုတောင်းဆိုပါတယ်ခမရတို့ရဲ့အစိတ်အတွေးတွေရွက်ဖွင့်လိုက်ပါခမရ
and we just prepared. We didn't leave the house. We locked the door and, and, you know, we just sort of prepared for the next 14 days. Um, so I remember that, you know, when I went to the pharmacy as well, before I locked up my doors, I went to the market, just bought everything that wouldn't perish for a week. Um, and then just started, you know, thinking about, you know, what could the next two weeks entail for us? Um, so it was a very scary experience, I think, for myself and for others. However, I feel very privileged that I got it right before many other people knew they had gotten it. So I was able to, you know, still access supplies in the pharmacies. I was still able to ask friends who were healthy to go shopping for me um, and, and just assist. But I think if I had gotten sick a week later, I would have not been that lucky because that's when really things started to shut down. I think the yeah, around the time that I got it, they had just started to say, okay, like restaurants are going to start to close. Um, and so we thought we had it. We didn't know if we had it, but we knew we weren't feeling right. Um, and so I ordered a test from online. And so I was able to test at home. And then that's when we know we confirmed it. Um, but luckily, everyone that I contacted didn't get COVID. <laughs> Um, meaning all the people that I contacted, you know, went before when I think I got it and over the weekend, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm, I gave it to all these people and I didn't. So I felt so lucky. It's nice to know that you're not a super spreader. No, exactly. It was probably the biggest relief of my life because, yeah, you feel like, you know, some people, I think in the last waves, people would really withhold if they had it and like get really scared and they wouldn't tell anyone. But for this wave, I feel like people, you know, wanted to know because, you know, the, there's the danger of what it can do when there's no functioning health system is much greater risk than the previous waves. Like there's, you couldn't really not tell people. And I remember when I, when I actually did tell people, you know, it, it's that kind of a panic, but I think a good panic among people that like, oh my God, I need to start to prepare. So I think it was really lucky for that. Um, but our experience with COVID was really traumatic. I think that people don't really talk a lot right now about, well, you do see it in, in, in social media, but it's like the trauma of the oxygen is one thing, but just the trauma of at what point do you do what? Like, what's the next step? you know, especially if you don't have an oximeter. So I remember I, you know, was really stressed. I started getting really bad anxiety throughout it. And I started to note take day by day what was going on. And then finally, I felt calmed down, you know, like, you know, noting our symptoms, noting what's happening, noting what medicine we're taking, noting how we feel. You became your own nurse. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> because there's no one else to nurse. I mean, I was calling doctors mm -hmm. abroad, getting their assistance, but I mean, they can only just make you mentally feel okay. They can't, you know, help you. Um, yeah. But I'm very thankful. So, it, you know, I think like all the symptoms that they describe, I think most people, including myself, were experiencing them, you know, Delta has quite a range. Um, but it wasn't until day 10 that we started to feel okay. Um, and I would say, okay, but just a little bit functionable, <laughs> um, or functioning. And, um, so yeah, but I mean, to this day, we're still struggling with the aftermath of it, you know, almost a month later. Um, so I think, I think people, you know, really focused on, of course, understandably on, you know, people who are dying in the oxygen, but also people who are recovering, there's this idea, oh, they're okay now. But we don't know enough about what's happening in Myanmar to actually know how people really truly are um, and what they're experiencing and what the trauma 
of this experience and what, what it's doing to our mental health. Um, I think one thing that I noticed going through this experience is that there's a lot more effects on your mental health than, than is discussed. Um, in addition to everything else that's happening in Myanmar, you know, you have this really traumatic health experience on top of all that. We don't know the effects that that's happening on our mental health and just the anxieties. And um, yeah, so I think that that was my most memorable symptom. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah, let's let's dive a bit deeper into that, the trauma and the, the emotions. So let's say when, when you first got that call uh, that someone that you had had contact with was positive. Um, like what, what kinds of feelings, what went through your mind? What, what were you picturing? I think just the question you had mentioned, am I going to be a super spreader? <laughs> because I was already out at that time. And so what do you do? Just turn around and, you know, go straight home. And so I think it was just that worry of like, oh my gosh, like what impact could I have had on the community? Um, so I think that was my main, like just fear. Um, but then also, you know, just like I mentioned, you know, what is, what kind of COVID do I have? And then also what is Delta? I mean, I think a month ago, no one really was talking about Delta a lot in Myanmar. And I think that it was just like, oh, I really didn't prepare for this. You know, you're preparing mentally for so many situations and scenarios. And we always knew COVID was coming. But it was just this idea of like, oh, we put this in the back of our mind for so long and now we have to deal with it. And that just that I just felt overwhelmed, you know, just, you know, we're going to add this onto everything now. OK, yeah, here we go. You know, we have to just deal with it head on and, and um, get ready. And like I said, just feeling really lucky that I went into a pharmacy and there were supplies and that we could order oximeters when no one could a week later. So, yeah. So yeah, I would say, yeah, fear and um, just feeling overwhelmed. Yeah, I think overwhelmed is the word of the moment for sure. Um, mm. So you have lived through a few COVID waves in Myanmar. Um, and I just was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how this one is different for the people because we we have already talked about we all know that it's different politically and it's, it, there's many factors that have made it different but for for the mm -hmm. communities and the people um how how is this one playing out differently i think that the biggest difference is that in the first wave there was a lot of trust in the Ministry of Health and Sports um, and in the government response and there was a lot of you know you know telling people okay like let's trust that they're doing their best and um, yeah I think that there was just a lot more trust and right now there's no trust we don't know who to trust and I think that that lack of trust is probably the biggest difference is that we feel very isolated and alone. Um, and we have to deal with this on our own and we have no support. And I think that that's the biggest difference. I mean, even by the second wave, even though people didn't want to follow restrictions, there was still this idea of like, well, they're probably doing their best for us. And they've, you know, they've been able to develop all these testing centers and all these systems that weren't there in just a few months. And now we see just a total unraveling of any system. And we see absolutely no response to how we are going to support people. I think that's a great answer. 
I think, I think you've really isolated what has changed for people. Um, so we talked about that you were lucky to have access to doctors that you could contact, um, doctors living outside of Myanmar, but what, what types of information would you have access to within Myanmar? What, how are people learning anything about this, this variant that's coming through and, and how to deal with it? Social media, for better or for worse, um, you know, they're, they're learning everything through social media. And I think there's some work being done on tele, telecommunication services for doctors to communicate with patients. But even within that, this goes back to this trust issue where, you know, some, some doctors who are supporting these services were arrested recently. So now there's this question of how do we get connected to doctors safely for patients and for the doctors? But I do think social media has been really great at sharing information, but sometimes that information like certain antibiotics being bought up in the pharmacy and panic buying, um, you know, is some of the downfalls of the social media sharing. But then also, I, I think that, you know, there's there's a lot of people and a lot of organizations really trying to support as best they can. And so there's you see a lot of updated translated materials coming up on social media. Um, but all in all, I think that there's nothing in addition to social media. I mean, there's no other option, right? Um, maybe some people use radio. I mean, radio has really made a comeback in the last few months. Um, but I think just in terms of, you know, mass accessibility, it would be social media. Oh, and then also I think, you know, support from from other countries. Like I think there's just kind of this solidarity element. So, you know, Southeast Asia is experiencing this, not just Myanmar. So I do think, you know, once information kind of comes out from Thailand, then that's shared within Myanmar because they might have the capacity or they definitely have the capacity to be doing more research on what's happening. And so we're not getting any awareness of what variants we really have. We just know our symptoms align with Delta, but there, from my knowledge, has been no confirmation of that's what we have. We only follow what's happening in Thailand or following what's happening in Bangladesh or India to get an idea of like what what's going on here because there's no research being shared with the public and being publicized about what's actually happening. Um, and I mean, even right now, in terms of the numbers of cases, we we don't really know the the, the numbers. I mean, it's yeah. So I think I think regionally, that's also helping share some information as well, um, because they're also experiencing this at the same time. Yeah, it's another reminder of how interconnected the region is. Exactly. Yeah, um, and how important it is to work on issues and problems from a regional perspective. Absolutely. Great. Um, We also talked about you feeling fortunate that you were out trying to get supplies earlier. Um, What have you seen just in the last week or so? What, what is happening in your, in your community and in communities around you? So when you go into the pharmacy and you ask for the core medicines, the core vitamins, you know, the core antibiotics that people are suggesting you buy, there's no, no availability of these medicines and vitamins at this time. And even if they are available, like, for example, vitamin D3, which is like the big vitamin everyone's suggesting everybody buy, you know, if you want a a bottle of that or a pack of that, it's 30,000 jet, which is totally out of the budget for most people. Yeah. And 
so that's a that's a big barrier. I mean, I, there's some areas where they're selling medicine for you know three, four, five, ten times the price. You know, even flu medicines that you know paracetamol with some extra you know ingredients in it um, are being sold for five thousand for four pills, and so it's just totally not accessible to a normal person. Um, so you see a lot of the price increases, you see an, an unavailability of supplies. And um, and yeah, I mean, even oximeters, I mean, without support from outside the country, we wouldn't be able to buy them anymore. You have to have those sent in, but you have to risk it getting confiscated because that's con- called like a controlled item now. Even sending face masks, face masks over the border is something that could be taken away from you, which is really, really shocking. Um, so that's sort of what you see right now. I mean, I'm, I don't know if this has been discussed yet, but the egg price in the middle of July went up, you know, one egg for 500 jet, which is something that would cost usually 150 or 200 jet. And so you see egg prices skyrocketing or you can't buy them anywhere. And those are just, you know, basic foods that people would buy every day. So you see this change in like, you know, market and panic buying, but then also you can totally understand why people are panic buying. You know, in the last few waves, you you would be like, don't do that. But in this situation, you're on your own. You have to do what you have to do for your family. And so this idea of people buying oxygen, what other options do you have? If you want to go to a private hospital, you have to put a deposit down before they even look at you. And so there's really no options for people during this time. Um, so, I mean, you even see in some of the the, uh, the convenience stores, they're selling body bags. So they're changing what they sell to help people during this time. It's very dark, but that's the reality of what people are dealing with they're, because they can't get the support that they need from any service. And if they do, it's, it's risky. So, yeah, we are seeing a lot of really scary stuff. And even wow. pharmacies that are really accessible to the people. For example, one, t- you know, today, um, this pharmacy was, you know, had many people because people were trying to help their families and it got shut down. So it's just, it's just um, very shocking. But the one thing to end on a positive note <laughs> is that Myanmar is the most resilient country I've ever encountered. And so after all of this happened, you all of a sudden saw, you know, a boom of online pharmacies and a boom of doctors, you know, trying to support in any way that they could. So I think that there is a lot of positive reaction and, you know, you see this in the social media community. So that's, that's a really uplifting point. Yeah, that I was going to, to ask about that as well, because I was still in Myanmar for the first wave, the first lockdown mm-hmm. and the response from, from Myanmar's like civil society groups in order to make sure that people who weren't working had food and access to things they needed was pretty incredible. Um, so there was, there was a really big movement of, of just generosity and, and social well-being. Absolutely. Um, has that, has that been possible in this wave? Cause things have changed so much. So I think you still what, do see it. Um, when you see like the white and the yellow flags being out, so people who need food, they put out a certain color flag. People um, who need just help because someone is dying or has died, they put a different flag out. Um, so I do think that people 
are doing their best, but that comes with a risk. And so I think that people are trying to help, but it's a huge trust issue where trust and fear that if I help people, I get arrested. So that's really the struggle. I think people would want to help each other more. But with the current circumstances, it's very difficult to help others right now. Although I think people are doing the best that they can, um, given the circumstances. But I mean, as the UN had pointed out this week, you know, 50% of the population in two weeks could have it. How can you help each other in that situation if one in two people have it or have had it? I mean, it's very challenging. As someone who had to nurse someone while having it, I don't know how you could help other people. You're just trying to to stay alive yourself. Yeah, that's truly scary. Um, in, in your case, so you were able to get all these supplies. Um, were you able to like give them to somebody else that needed them? Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, going back to the social media communication channels, you know, people are always putting up, Hey, can you help me with this? Or can you help me with that? And so once, um, I was finished and I knew, okay, I probably won't need these antibiotics. Um, I would offer them out to someone else and then also, you know, offered out extra test kits I had because I realized that I could test positive for a very long time. So, you know, just passed out the things that I didn't think I needed anymore. Um, because, yeah, that's what you have to do. And then, you know, even though we've recovered now, we're like, okay, how can we help people? But when you have it for two or three weeks, you, you don't have the energy to help others. You have to just focus on yourself. And I mean, I even cut social media out for weeks. I, I couldn't. It's too too much. So I think once you get better, you're like, okay, how, how can I assist others? So we pass medicine on. We pass um, anything on that we think would be helpful for others. Yeah. And I, do you think that a lot of people yeah, are trying to sh- share what they've got if they can? Definitely. I think a lot of people are sharing, you know, with their families or with their neighbors. I mean, even us, we're like, our oximeter is on loan if anyone needs it, you know, in in our building or in our neighborhood, because, you know, that's what you have to do. People don't have access to everything that they need. So I I do think that that's happening. Great. Good. Um, There was something else that you mentioned that I think is interesting because I've seen some advertisements and campaigns coming out of other countries, maybe out of out of India, that address the stigma of COVID-19 um, and trying to combat this fear of telling people or the um, fear of people who have tested positive. Um, and you mentioned that you are not seeing this so much in Myanmar. Is that right? Yes and no. I mean, I think that at this point, everyone knows someone who has died. You know, I, I don't think anyone has been spared, sadly. I think everyone knows someone who's died or most people have someone close to them that has it as well. And so I think that there's this idea of, you know, <laughs> solidarity now that, you know, we, we are kind of in this together. Um, however, of course, the fear still stands. You know, I think that now with the current updates about it being as contagious as the chicken pox, I mean, there's a very understandable fear of others. You know, when you see someone that's had it and you don't know if they're contagious and they're respecting that 14 day, um, I think that, you know, people have a logical fear of wanting to just run away, especially if they're older. Um, So I think there's like a logical fear now. um, But I also think that there's just not enough awareness of 
what Delta is doing to this country as well. So it's really hard to get rid of that stigma. I do think it's really important to tell people, but then also I, I think that um, there's just not enough knowledge that that people can rely on right now, and that's credible to really get rid of that fear either. But I do find a lot of solidarity. You know, I think that people know that this is affecting everyone, and no one can escape it. Um, so yeah, so I think yes and no. There were people from the INGO community listening to this, and they were wondering what's the best way to reach Myanmar people in communities. Do you have any suggestions for them? That's a great question. About so how to get information, especially information right now. How would you get helpful information? I think be creative. I think be creative and trust the local people. Um, of course, the international community maybe knows a lot about what's happening, but the situation in Myanmar is extremely unique, and I'm sure that they know that. Um, but just consulting community organizations about what they think is best and then how to implement that and just really giving a lot of trust to them that they know what to do. Um, and I think that that is the main thing I would always suggest is just trust that the local people know because this isn't their first struggle. And even though it maybe is their first pandemic, but it's still very much a, a struggle that is affecting the entire community. Um, so, so yeah, I think, think being creative as well that, you know, I think like one thing I noticed in the first wave was people would make posters and they would do this whole like pamphlet thing but I thought yeah, it could be like a little bit more creative than that I think they could really find ways to engage with the youth engage with children and you know engage with the community in a way that is more more influential I guess I just feel like the efforts were great but it it doesn't have the impact sometimes um, to just make flyers and things like that um, and so I think that that's just one thing is just collaborating with each region individually about what they think is the best approach um, and just giving them supplies as much as you can. Um, so I guess that that's, that's really my, my main suggestion to the INGO community. So you were caring for your roommate um, who got hit a little bit harder yeah. with the virus than you did. So were there ever times that you were planning for a worst case scenario that if, if you would have had to take him to the hospital, but there's no hospitals? Yeah. I mean, I what think. What were you thinking you'd do? <laughs> um, this is scary. This is what a lot of, this is the decision that a lot of people in Myanmar are having to make right now. So like, how do you think about this? Well, I think also it's really different for different people as well. And so I think for me, like for me, it was like, okay, well, at what point do we send someone to the hospital? And and that decision alone is is extremely scary because we don't know what the hospital is going to look like. We don't know what they'll do. And then you're sort of public and then you're also exposed to what's happening around you, um, you know, seeing dead bodies, which is what people were telling us we would experience. So it was very much like if we went to the hospital, that would just be the worst experience. So why would we do that? But what if we had to? So I think that this is a really hard decision for people to make. Um, 
But for me personally, it was never an option. <laughs> like I, I just was like the thing that I really didn't want to do because all I kept hearing was stay home. This is, you can probably give the best treatment if you can find oxygen, which luckily we were able to rent um, for an emergency situation. And in my eyes, I thought we have the medicine, we have the oxygen, we have the oximeter, we have everything here. There's nothing else a doctor can do for us. And we're putting ourselves at a security risk if we go to the hospital. And then if we get to the hospital, we have to stay there for two more weeks. So it's just like this idea of like, what that would be, how much that would cost. And just, it's just like all these questions are going in your brain. But biggest thing for going to the hospital was security. Why, why would I put myself in that situation? Um, so I think that that, yeah, I, I mean, I guess security, maybe I wouldn't be at risk, but I just think it's just this idea. I don't know. It's just, you don't, you don't, you don't know who's you at don't risk, know. Right? Yeah. You don't know. <laughs> you don't know who's there. You don't, I don't know. There's just, there's so much unknown about that experience that it just was too scary. So I think maybe it wasn't a security risk. It was just more fear of like, what would that look like? Like, am I going to see lots of death? And that's scary in itself. Um, so I think that that sort of was the process. So I think we kind of, from my, from my mindset, it was, no, I don't want to go there. So I'm going to prepare everything at home so that worst case scenario, we're here. Um, and that everything is dealt with here. Um, whereas I think, you know, for, for them, it was more like, you know, I, I need to go, I need to go. And it's like, no, hold on. You know? So I would do calls to do like counseling calls, you know, you're okay. You're okay. Cause I think people don't really talk about Myanmar, just how long, how long it really, can, it can last. And so you're just struggling for days and days and you just feel like it's never going to end. And so it's really hard for people in that experience to, to make a logical Yeah. And by, by the fifth day of being really sick, you're like, I'm over this. <laughs> right. Exactly. Go somewhere. Yeah. So I think, so I think like my, my list of, you know, when would we do this was very different than my roommates. Um, but at the same time, they had a fever and I did it. So for me, it was like thinking of logistics, right? Um, and thinking about, you know, just being afraid of hospitals. Because I think I would just open my social media and it would just be something scary at a hospital. And I, I didn't want to go there. Um, and the only options then were private hospitals, which would cost, I think some people are saying ten to $20,000. And how would I pay for that? You know, so I just financially and, you know, logistically and looking at what I saw on social media, it just was, it was just too scary to consider. What kind of bigger impacts has the COVID pandemic had on Myanmar society? We've talked a lot about kind of the individual experience, but what are you seeing on, on the society level? I think the greatest impact I've seen COVID-19 have on society is on education. Um, schools have been closed for, you know, over a year now. I mean, they reopened for a time this year, however, with very low attendance, even reported by the official numbers, it was very low. Um, and I think that that impact will be felt in society very soon. You know, we're, look, we're into the second year without schools. And even though some, you know, private education services are happening, um, it's still not reaching the young people and the children. And I think that that's going to have a big impact on 
the future of this country. Um, and so that's the biggest thing that we see. And also just thinking about that, you know, in the Western other countries, even Thailand, right, they opened and closed and opened and closed and had the option of online learning. So they're able to get information about, say, COVID-19 throughout this whole pandemic. But in Myanmar, you haven't had that option, you know, from the beginning, the previous or the NLD-led government or civilian-led government had made a decision there would be no online learning. So there has really been no information sharing except for like the TV channel they made um, with the community about COVID-19. So I think there's some things maybe, you know, through some forms of multimedia, but there's been not a lot of knowledge sharing about the pandemic. So there might be a lack of awareness about like what's happening in some areas. Um, but then also, you know, what is this doing to the, the children of this of this country? So that's been one of the biggest impacts. Um, and then also just the idea of travel, right? You see a huge isolation. Um, you know, parts of Myanmar were blocked off for many, many, many months. And so you start to see like this isolation from last year where these communities weren't allowed to travel between these communities very easily. Um, for months and months. And so you kind of see it, that effect on the economy as well. And, you know, even before the coup happened, the economic crisis was very real and was very much experienced by millions of people. So I think that, you know, the lack of transportation and also the impact on people's jobs um, has been huge. And so I think educationally and economically, there's been a, a massive impact on the community um, even before the coup. So, I mean, the people started, you know, in a really difficult position before this third wave even came about. And so it's, yeah. So I, so I think that that's the biggest impact that I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of impacts everywhere economically. <laughs> yeah. We saw a lot of those yeah. big hotels closed down the middle of last year, even before anything. Right. Right, exactly. And yeah, even just the idea of migrant work as well, right? You know, economically on a local front, but also international front, they can't travel as easily. Um, you know, the Thai border has been shut for a long period of time. So it's it's been a huge impact, not only on domestic work, but people's ability to travel outside to, to find work. And also that stigma, right? I mean, there's been a lot of discrimination um, towards people from Myanmar in, in Thailand and, and other and in Malaysia, you know, for bringing the virus to these areas. So they were blamed a lot um, at the beginning of this third wave for bringing it, and also in the second wave as well. From your perspective, are there any populations in Myanmar that are being especially impacted by this COVID wave? So one that's made the news this past week has been um, the outbreak within prisons. So I think that that is one of the most affected groups at this time. They're being denied, you know, health supplies. And there's also, you know, some some big names of people that are thought to have had COVID, um, like Sean Chernell and Danny Fenster. Um, and I think that we don't know a lot about it, but we do know, you know, through leaked information that COVID is spread throughout all the prisons and that they're not getting the resources that they need. And I think that that's a big risk because already the conditions within the prison are very challenging. So I truly couldn't imagine as someone who survived COVID, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be in the prison during this time and worrying about this. Um, so I think that that population is being deeply affected by this. Um, in addition, I think that IDP communities 
are also being really affected by this um, more than others because they are not able to access materials and resources and medical supplies like maybe other areas can because they might be on the run. And so, you know, I think that that's one of the biggest challenges right now is like, how do you support those communities um, with medical care, especially if they're on the move? Um, so I think that that would be that the two areas that are being deeply impacted by COVID-19 would be the prisons and the IDP communities. Thank you so much for sharing that really personal, really emotional, really traumatic experience with Insight Myanmar and the listeners, because we do get to read and we do get to hear on the news about the situation, but we rarely get to hear about this firsthand experience and what it really, what it really feels like to, to go through this kind of crisis. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that with us. Yeah, no problem. I mean, I hope that this is heard by many because I do think that the world will be impacted by what's happening in Myanmar, especially regionally, but also, you know, looking at what's happening in North America and other parts of the world, you know, so I think that what's happening here is really relevant and we're looking at a long a long-term situation where we need to work together and coordinate together and you know, support people because if we don't take care of those who don't have privilege to get vaccines, we'll never get through this. And I think that that's the core message. We we need to really support those who can't get vaccines or else there is no solution in sight in my eyes. After today's discussion, it should be clear to everyone just how dire the situation is in Myanmar. We are doing our best to shine a light on the ongoing crisis, and we thank you for taking the time to listen. If you found today's talk of value, please consider passing it along to friends in your network. And because our nonprofit is now in a position to transfer funds directly to the protest movement, please also consider letting others know that there is now a way to give that supports the most vulnerable and to those who are especially impacted by this organized state terror. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are resisting the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Every cent goes immediately and directly to funding those local communities who need it most. Donations go to support such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, families of deceased victims, and the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies. Or if you prefer, you can earmark your donation to go directly to the guest you just heard on today's show. In order to facilitate this donation work, we have registered a new nonprofit called Better Burma for this express purpose. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is now directed to this fund. Alternatively, you can visit our new Better Burma website, which is betterburmaoneword.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause, and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to those respective accounts, or email us at info at In all cases, that's Better Burma, one word, 
spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration. We're going to welcome Sandra Kong. Sandra, can you start just by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm a Chinese Burmese American, second generation immigrant, meaning my parents immigrated from Myanmar um, after graduating from medical school. And I was born and raised in Texas and um, growing up in a smaller town in North Texas. I didn't have much of a Burmese community around me. And so most of my exposure to Burmese culture was through my parents. Um, and then a monastery um, that I traveled to a couple hours away from my home. And that is where I um, came to understand my identity and culture a little bit more, uh, mostly through food and a little bit through religion, uh, practicing Buddhism. And um, when the coup happened through prior experience I've had in, in Myanmar through public health projects related to hepatitis and uh, chronic diseases, I foresaw how and saw how the healthcare professionals on the ground were really leading this movement, but also in how long-term, um, if the coup was to continue and the military was to stay in power, how that would continue to strengthen, um, so would continue to harm the healthcare system in Myanmar that over the past few years has had so much progress in rebuilding, restructuring, and reforming its communities and connections with ethnic, with ethnic minority groups. And so over the past um, six months now, I've been leading Global Movement for Myanmar Democracy with uh, my co-founders, Jen Jen and Frank, and our wonderful team in raising awareness in Myanmar and keeping the story alive, as well as uh, addressing some of this uh, cultural apathy that I once experienced with my own identity through the virtual space. Yes, thank you. That's great. What can the Myanmar diaspora living in the U.S. do right now to help people in Myanmar that are living through the coup and now the COVID crisis? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I think the same actions at the beginning of the coup remain just as relevant now. And so whether you are Burmese or not, um, or whether you're, or not you've even been to Myanmar, keeping the story alive, like I mentioned, is incredibly important, especially with so many events happening on mainstream media and on social media spaces. Um, it's good among your own circles to um, keep updates coming along. And so there are a lot of Instagram accounts, uh, Twitter accounts, Facebook pages that are very active and providing on-the-ground daily updates and so on. Jim Bondi's website, we've listed a couple there. And um, through following those accounts, you'll see a lot more pop up. And so just staying informed and, and showing support for those who are affected by the coup. Um, we, we think about directly addressing the needs of those on the ground. Uh, but also you do have people all across the world who have family, friends who are being affected and targeted. And so just checking in on them, um, showing support for their mental health and having a shoulder for them to lean on is, is incredibly important this time. And within the U.S., there's actually a really important bill. We so now calling the Burma Bill, hopefully getting released within this uh, this month or the next month. And it's a very important piece of legislation that will um, strengthen 
tangible actions um, pitched from Congress to the executive department. And so this includes improved humanitarian aid, sanctioning a very large oil and gas enterprise known as the Myanmar Oil and Gas Enterprise. It's been one of the next um, big companies that U.S. lobbyists are uh, targeting right now, as well as stronger accountability mechanisms, which is incredibly important as uh, we eventually move to um, tribunals and uh, justice mechanisms later on. So this bill is incredibly important and what we've been doing in the past couple of weeks is just scheduling calls with our senators. And they've been very receptive, hearing uh, stories of those in the international diaspora and, and friends in Myanmar and why this bill is so important. And so we need all of those voices as much as we can get so that this bill can finally be released and showing our own representatives and senators that there is constitutional support, constituent support for this bill. And hopefully, um, to those who are listening that they can get involved. There's um, a Facebook page called the U.S. Advocacy Coalition for Myanmar, and they're a group of activists, very well-trained in lobbying, who are offering one-on-one support in reaching out to, to Congress. So definitely get involved there. And um, beyond that, there's a lot, a lot of fundraisers happening. Um, the civil disobedience movement is what is keeping this movement alive. And so Beyond that, uh, support for financially for these participants in the movement. There's a big, big wave of COVID-19 um, striking Myanmar right now. And so with the military shaking the healthcare system there, um, there's a lot of support needed for medical supplies, oxygen tanks, etc. And so also on Geoformy's page, we have a couple of fundraisers listed. And so they're really creative ways to also get involved in fundraisers rather than just simply donating money. Uh, for example, there are monasteries and churches around the U.S. that are hosting food fundraisers on many weekends. There are stickle fundraisers going around. And so uh, finding whatever creative needs you have to help support the cause is also just as important. Yeah, there's been a lot of activity and action lately on this. Um, yeah, that's right. I wanted to ask about what you know about what is happening to the healthcare workers in Myanmar at this time and over the last few months? What has their experience been like? Yeah, so since the beginning of the coup, they, as I mentioned, have been leading the protests and boycott movements um, that are very much shaking the military in, in their control of the country. And so because of this, um, Healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, even medical students who are at the front line of the protests are, one, being targeted by the military. And so um, in streets and in their homes being ducked in the middle of the night, captured, and many of them we haven't heard from since or have since actually heard a confirmation of their passing. Um, and for those who are healthcare professionals, uh, we all abide by a code of ethics and, and commitment to our patients. And so um, with military control of many of these hospitals, um, these doctors are not even allowed to treat their patients. And when they do set up makeshift clinics, they also then targeted by the military physically. And so um, a lot of these professionals are in running and hiding and living in fear. Um, and as I mentioned also, the COVID-19 crisis in Myanmar is really exacerbating right now. And so um, doctors who are trying to treat patients so the oxygen um, are also prevented and targeted through very 
horrific means. And even the patients themselves, there were a lot of reports of patients staying in line, waiting in line for oxygen tanks, um, oxygen pipelines that the military has cut off, and they're being shot at by the military. So this is just a few examples of how people's right to health is being blatantly um, attacked. And um, what we're seeing now is that, you know, long-term is really going to affect the long-term health of the country and of the people. And so this is why we see this as not just a Myanmar crisis, but a a global health crisis, um, especially in that with having the Delta variants in, in Myanmar run um, without any control, there is that risk of further transmission and more mutations of the virus. That's right. And um, sorry to put you on the spot, but do you know what the current projections are for Myanmar? I know a week or so ago, they were as high as, as 50% of the population was expected to, to have COVID at some point. Do you know what it's at now? Yeah, so um, I am hesitant to report projections as completely accurate just because um, there's a lot of factors that go into projections um, related to like environmental context, movement of people, reopenings, reopenings of uh, certain businesses. And we already are experiencing a, a severe underreporting of tests, confirmations, and deaths. Um, but what I can say is that um, while I'm not sure how accurate the 50% is of, of infection, um, we are seeing an increasingly and exponentially growing um, number of infections in the country. And um, whatever numbers we see now, uh, these are, like I said, under-reportings. And so um, over the next few weeks, you will see a continued uh, quick spread of the, of, the, of the disease if you don't have the vaccination treatments delivered properly, appropriately. Your group, GM4MD, has some link to NUG at the moment, I think. You've been in touch with especially the, the youth representatives. Um, what is NUG doing in this crisis, in the COVID crisis specifically, to, to help? What have they been able to accomplish Yeah, so uh, we've been fortunate to um, listen on a couple of meetings. And so um, this was a couple of weeks ago, and so I'm sure a lot more has evolved since then. But um, then UG was able to procure um, 6 million vaccines and form a COVID task force with ethnic health organizations um, across the country and um, has started delivering based on reportings I was seeing on social media and media spaces. Uh, which is incredibly exciting. And so through this COVID task force, um, hopefully this will improve um, vaccination distribution to um, a more equitable uh, distribution, and um, especially among border areas, uh, not only just in the main cities. And so that was a really, um, really positive piece of news for yeah. the vaccination development. Yeah. Okay. That's really good to know. Um, 
have we heard anything about what the plans are for vaccination in general in Myanmar? Um, I mean, so you did just mention that the N that NUG is distributing some. Um, what about for getting further inland from the borders? Do we know if there's a plan? So I hadn't heard from that last meeting. Um, they were exploring a couple of mechanisms that are private just for security reasons, but um, they are working on them and working with the relevant stakeholders based on that conversation. Right. And absolutely nothing from the military SAC as far as a plan. Um, I, I can't confirm that there's no plan from the military, um, but there's just difficulties with they're just their, their administration of it and um, how that would be recognized in the military so far. So what I've heard mostly is from the NUG side rather than the military. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It will be interesting. What are, even if there was a plan put in place, what would be some of the challenges in getting vaccinations to, to some parts of the population? Yeah. Um, one being outreach and um, being able to get throughout the country um, to deliver vaccinations. So um, this relates to problems even before the coup happened. And so while I was working in um, Myanmar for public health projects, um, one was related to hepatitis B. And so I, hepatitis B is a chronic, um, it's a virus that causes a chronic liver disease and it affects a a couple of years ago, like 6% of the population in Myanmar, quite large. Unfortunately, this disease is entirely preventable and could be eradicable if we are able to instate the proper prevention measures. And one way to prevent this is through a vaccination series that gives almost 100% immunity to patients. And this requires a vaccine. And so not just in Myanmar, but around the world, you are seeing hesitancy among vaccinations um, due to a lot of uh, false uh, facts about vaccinations that have proliferated among communities. Um, maybe even then, um, among more rural areas, there is more uh, of a presence of traditional medicine that leads to skepticism of more modern medicine treatments like vaccines. And so I know that while conducting some of those screenings and testings, there was a lot of education that was required, trust building with communities in order to deliver these vaccines. And so Luckily, there are infrastructures and you know, uh, communities in place that have been starting these conversations, but it is still a, a significant barrier in terms of once you get the vaccine and giving it to, to the people and um, helping them understand why it's so effective and important. Um, and so, um, but within the task force, hopefully through their um Relationships with ethnic minority leaders, they're able to overcome that mistrust. Yeah. Good. We've talked a bit about the oxygen shortage or long lines to get access to oxygen. What are some of the reasons there is such a shortage of these medical supplies and just basic, even basic medicines like ibuprofen? What is causing this? Yeah, so um, one is a lack of ability to um, 
procure supplies across borders. Um, sometimes a lot of medications, um, especially through nonprofits, are um, received through other countries. And so with the closing of borders, you're not able to receive these medications anymore in a safe manner. Um, and so, of course, with the lack of um, supply and with high demand, that's where you're seeing that shortage of medical supplies. And so um, that's why it's so important to continue supporting um, these fundraisers who are trying to, through uh, private means, um, get supplies and, and money through the country. Good. Is there any truth to this um, idea that the military has been hoarding these things? So we have heard of uh, cases and reports where the military has uh, prioritize their own um, comrades for treatments, for COVID treatment supplies and such. Um, I can't myself completely confirm, but uh, with regards to like COVID vaccines, for example, we definitely have seen um, these being administered to military folks versus prioritizing the standard, international standards of age and chronic disease, um, which shows even more so how um, the health and rights of the citizens of Myanmar with the military in power will continue to be um, ignored. So do you still have family in Myanmar? I do, yeah. Yeah. Um, so how have you been dealing with the experience of watching this all happen from afar, from far away. Yeah, I think uh, one response was, "How? What can I do? What can I do to help?" Which what is what inspired me to um, found GM4MD, and uh, more so seeing other people who had these similar sentiments of wanting to help, didn't know how to providing them the platform to do so, and so. It is really hard hearing um, these updates day by day that are progressively um, worsening, getting more severe. And so um, not only letting that drive and, and motivate me, but also um, letting that push me to too hard of a uh, balance with work and life. And so we're seeing that among a lot of people who are previously involved in a lot of advocacy, they've had to take a step back because um, of a lack of work-life balance from before. And so I think also leaning on um, what can give you peace and calm and reflection. And so for me, that is reflecting with friends, it's journaling, it's um, embracing, you know, also positive parts of life, like school starting and classes. And I think um, having that moving forward at the same time um, has been a good balance for me. And so um, checking in with the people um, I know on the ground as well um, and hearing their stories, I think helps also ground me a little bit as well when I do often get stories from social media versus more of their personal takes um, on, on the situation on the ground. Great. Um, and do you feel a kind of solidarity with the, the health care professionals that are in Myanmar at the moment? Yeah, as a rising medical student and seeing my fellow students 
um, with you know, their strong passion for health, um, continue to, to protest. It shows to me what it means to really commit to being a healthcare professional, what it means to be a doctor, what it means to, at times, having to put um, the safety of your patients first before your own. And that's something that was shown through COVID-19 across the world, but even more so now with doctors battling both this raging pandemic and also the raging military at the same time. Um, so it's uh, definitely led me to reflect on my own privilege of being able to pursue my passion for medicine without having to um, think about an oppressor um, uh, tackling me and, and targeting me. Um, also really strengthened my drive to um, in my interest in public health and in human rights to continue pushing these themes forward in whatever work or, or departments that I get involved in. That's nice. Do you hope to be able to go back to Myanmar and do some public health or, or health work in general? Yeah, um, I have thought a lot about, you know, uh, what ways I can effectively and um, sustainably to global health projects within Myanmar. And so on the line, I would love to to go back and um, continue engaging with the community partners that I was able to um, a couple of years ago. And so I always think like um, there is a lot of talk about you know, global health and the ethics of it um, with a lot of people just, you know, parasailing in a lot of volunteerism, and so I definitely want to see that change in, in Myanmar and having sustainable collaboration between partners here in the U.S. and partners here in, in Myanmar, and I've seen how that's been really fruitful and hope to keep that collaboration alive um, in the future one day. Yeah, that makes sense. That's good. Um, back to the politics a bit. Um, can you speak at all to the... ASEAN reaction to to the COVID crisis in Myanmar that's kind of spinning out of control and affecting its neighboring countries. What what has ASEAN's response been? Mm -hmm. Has it been satisfactory? Yeah. Um, to be blunt, no. <laughs> we, uh, among a lot of uh, ASEAN don't have much faith in, in ASEAN. Um, there's a lot of factors for that. One being they have a strong consensus rule. There's, you know, very complex political dynamics between the member states. And so um, even within uh, their own member states outside of Myanmar, uh, we weren't seeing like a unified response among member states. And so it is uh, disheartening to see a lack of solid action from ASEAN in supporting Myanmar this time. Um, this is why uh, among advocacy spheres, we really are uh, focused on um, pushing forward these other mechanisms. Uh, there's different um, NGOs and, and INGOs working to deliver um, vaccinations to to to, to Myanmar. Yeah, yeah, it's been interesting, and this. This is a little bit off of the COVID-19 topic, um, but just because you're representing this youth movement, um, what do you make of the protests in Thailand at the moment? Um, 
Do you think it's fair to say that they were inspired by what's been going on in Myanmar or related to it in any way? I, I think just among the whole Asian region, you are seeing this threatening of democracy and human rights. Um, something I really learned a lot more about was meeting different uh, human rights activists in um, the Filipino sphere and in Vietnam. So the protests that are happening right now in Thailand, they've actually been you know going on for quite some time now. And even when uh, the coup first began in Myanmar around the same time, Thailand was experiencing protests too. And so I'm not sure if it's just inspiration for Myanmar, but more so like you're just seeing this tiredness from, from those in, in the countries of having to continue to face these oppressors again and again. Um, and so this is where having and showing international support is so important so that they feel like the world is with them and standing with them. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're all kind of in it together in a lot of ways. We're all in it together. Mm-hmm. Great. Mm. Something I was thinking about that you said was the um, there's there's like a lot of misinformation going around about what can cure or prevent COVID nineteen in Myanmar. Do you have some examples? Um, I know I was there at the, the for the first wave of it, and I remember there was a very heavy focus on garlic and ginger. And if you ate lots and lots of garlic and ginger, mm. you wouldn't um, you wouldn't catch it. What other kinds of of misinformation are people getting? Yeah, I, that's interesting. Um, I I haven't heard too much about uh, misinformation in Myanmar alone, but um, I do know some misinformation people have about the vaccine itself is that. Um, one, because of the method of COVID uh, vaccine delivery, some of them are um, mRNA, DNA-based, meaning they do um, have mechanisms that can replicate your genes in the body, but it doesn't mean that it's changing your genetic information. Um, it just means it's replicating the information so that it can create the necessary components of your virus-fighting machines um, so that then it can create the necessary proteins and, and destroy the, the virus itself. Um, there also were concerns about um, the effect of it with pregnant uh, women as well. And so um, there have been research reports over the past couple months that have shown how um, it won't, you know, affect the heart, the, the, the baby itself. Um, and then there's also, again, just overall um, mistrust of the vaccine itself, like I mentioned, and um, how it's been tested among certain populations. And so, um, at least within the vaccines in, in the U.S., that I believe some of them are getting delivered to, to Myanmar eventually, um, mm. there has been um, efforts to ensure that a diversity of um, ethnic groups are, are represented in the clinical studies. Of course, it's not perfect, but um, it's not just like one-sided towards one ethnic group um, as well. Um, and I think the last concern uh, I've heard a lot is with how quickly the vaccine was rolled out. They think that it wasn't tested well. Mm. It wasn't um, really passing all of the uh, security measures, but it, they were. It just means that a lot of the red tape and um, 
the measures it take to that really slow down the process of improving vaccines um, were amplified just to improve the the speed at which the vaccine was was approved. Well, I think I thank you so much for for sharing this. We touched on some of your medical expertise and some of the political arenas you're working in, and as well as your your personal, um, the way it's affected you personally. So thank you so much for sharing all of that. And yeah, thank you so much for having yeah. me on here. Um, we wish you the best of luck where everyone's really rooting for GM4MD um, to succeed uh, and to be this power of, of youth, of especially Myanmar youth and Myanmar diaspora youth and um, being the future of the movement. So good luck with that. Thank you so much, Mary. You've been listening to the Insight Myanmar podcast. We'd appreciate it very much if you could rate, review, and or share this podcast. Every little bit of feedback helps. You can also subscribe to the Insight Myanmar podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. If you can't find our feed on your podcast player, please just let us know and we'll ensure it can be offered there in the future. Also, make sure to check out our website for a list of our complete episodes, including additional text, videos, and other information available at insightmyanmar.org. And I also invite you to take a look at our new nonprofit organization at betterburma.org. There was certainly a lot to talk about in this episode, and we'd like to encourage listeners to keep the discussion going. Make a post, request specific questions, and join in on discussions currently going on on the Insight Myanmar podcast Facebook group. You're also most welcome to follow our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts by the same name. If you're not on social media, feel free to message us directly at info at insightmyanmar.org. Or if you'd like to start up a discussion group on another platform, let us know and we can share that form here. Finally, we're open to suggestions about guests or topics for future episodes. So if you have someone or something in mind, please do be in touch. We would like to take this time to thank everyone who made this podcast possible. Currently, our team consists of two sound engineers, Mike Bink and Martin Combs. There's of course, Zach Hessler, content collaborator and part-time co-host. Ken Pransky helps with editing and a special Mongolian volunteer who is asked to remain anonymous does our social media templates. In light of the ongoing crisis in Myanmar, a number of volunteers have stepped in to lend a hand as well. And so we'd like to take this time to appreciate their effort in our time of need. And we're always on the lookout for more volunteers during this critical time. So if you'd like to contribute, definitely let us know. We'd also like to thank everyone who has assisted us in arranging for the guests we've interviewed so far. And of course, we send a big thank you to the guests themselves for agreeing to come on and share such personal, powerful stories. Finally, we're immensely grateful for the donors who made this entire thing possible. We want to remind our listeners that the opinions expressed by our guests are their own and don't necessarily reflect the host or other podcast contributors. Please also note that as we are mainly a volunteer team, we do not have the capacity to fact check our guest interviews. By virtue of being invited on our show, 
there's a trust that they will be truthful and not misrepresent themselves or others. If you have any concerns about the statements made on this or other shows, please contact us. This recording is the exclusive right of Insight Myanmar podcast and may not be used without the expressed written permission of the podcast owner, which includes video, audio, written transcripts, or excerpts of any episodes. Also not meant to be used for commercial purposes. On the other hand, we're very open to collaboration. So if you have a particular idea in mind for sharing any of our podcasts or podcast-related information, please feel free to contact us with your proposal. If you would like to support our mission, we welcome your contribution. During this time of crisis, all donations now go towards supporting the protest movement in Myanmar through our new nonprofit, Better Burma. You may give by searching Better Burma on PayPal, Venmo, Cash App, GoFundMe, and Patreon, as well as via credit card at betterburma.org donation. You can also give right on our Insight Myanmar website, as all donations given there are directed towards the same fund. And with that, we're off to work on the next show, so see you next episode.